Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. Uh, we're here with David Heatherbell. It's February 8th, 2024 here in the U.S. and February 9th, 2024 in New Zealand, where David is joining us from via Zoom. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure getting to know you uh, via kind of email correspondence over the past few months and a uh, pleasure to finally uh, talk to you in person today. Uh, let's start with the most important question of all, which is why wine? Does that tie in with Oregon specifically or just? Just in general. You know, I evolved into having an affection for wine and a sort of a romance. But, um, yeah, you've sort of caught blindsided me with that. I hadn't thought about it. Uh, because, you know, I was raised with a good Methodist mother who was a non-drinker and in a country that was a bit naive about wine drinking in my youth. And it... I suppose it was seeking to be a bit more knowledgeable about the world and becoming more familiar with world tastes. And it's something I grew into. I definitely wasn't born with with a glass over breakfast when I was young, you know. Well, let's talk a little bit about then, about life growing up. Tell us about where, where you were born and raised and kind of life before you went to school. Yes, I was born in a small country town, Brightwater and Nelson in the top of the South Island. Um, interestingly enough, my father was born in the Pacific Northwest up in Hornby Island off Vancouver Island. And my grandfather, I didn't know for very long, but I had all the tales. This influenced my great attraction to Oregon. He he even was involved in the Pacific Northwest in the Klondike. He traded as a merchant down to Oregon in the beaver trade in the mid-1800s. So, you know, I grew up with Oregon Trail and <laughs> not just Davy Crockett. Oregon was in, I was almost preconditioned for it. So as you were coming up on on uh, time to go to university, tell me about what school you chose and why and, and what you were kind of thinking about at that point for, for a future. Yes, I had stumbled into science and uh, I went to University of Canterbury here in Christchurch, which is a good, good traditional college for science and chemistry, biochemistry degrees. Then I joined a, a research institute for the government that specialized in fruit research. And that was called Department of Scientific Industrial Research and started working on fruit products. And I had the opportunity to do a PhD overseas and very intelligently chose Oregon. I had options in Cornell and Davis out of interest. And um, that, 
that's where the Oregon story really began, 1966, doing a PhD at Oregon State in the Food Science and Technology Department. At that stage, I was developing an interest in wine, but it was just it was just a good solid degree, food science and technology. Tell me about uh, first impressions of Oregon and and of how the PhD program unfolded. Yes, that was 1966 to 1970, and I think I was lucky. I think this was the golden era in America. We all think that of our youth, of course, but just marvelous. Um, the graduate program was good, and there were people from all over the world. Uh, yeah, I started to get an interest in the Oregon industry because it was in its rebirth stage then, you know, David Lett. You're obviously a historian too, Rich, and you know all the Oregon story backwards. But 1960, end of the 1960s, you know, David Lett and Erie, he was just starting the plant beginning 1970. So when I was in Oregon then, there was more interest in fruit wines in the 60s. Oak Knoll, for instance. And... Uh, with all your wonderful berry fruits, I got developed an interest in fruit wines too. But uh, anyhow, that was the 1960s. It was a wonderful period, uh, made lifelong friends. And uh, America was also in a more comfortable period as far as um, international relations went, I suppose. There were it was, despite the Vietnam War and all that, it was still a golden era. So, as you, as your, as your PhD started to come into focus, tell me about working with the fruits and 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 berries and grapes. Uh, what were you studying for the PhD, and 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 how how aware were you of what Oregon was starting to do when it comes to to the modern wine industry? Yes, in the sixties, like I say, my real awareness of what Oregon could do developed after I'd left in 1970. But I had been working for a fruit research institute in New Zealand on kiwi fruit and a little bit on grapes, making wines and beverage products and that. Came to Oregon and, you know, for a PhD program, you got to have a thesis on an original topic. At that stage, I did the PhD on development of flavor and identification of aromas and flavor in carrots, <laughs> because there was an interest in unknowns about carrots. But it didn't matter what you worked on. It was your union card, you know. Techniques, learning all the techniques about sensory perception and analysis and flavors and stuff. So obviously at that time, you mentioned it was it was food science and technology and, and wine wasn't part of what Oregon State was focusing on yet. That's so right. so tell me about the professors you had and, and what was what was the general kind of focus of Oregon State's department at that point? What were the what were they what industries were they working with most closely? You know, there's a horticulture department there too and 
I actually initially wanted to work on horticultural products, fruit and that, and I liaised with them, but it's just the way it worked out. They, there was a lot of work on all aspects of toxicology, um, fruits and vegetables to some extent, um, dairy products, seafoods, a pretty broad spectrum. There was one person at Oregon State had done a little bit of work on fruit wine, uh, Professor Yang, Y-A-N-G. That was the only work that had gone on there at that stage, yeah. As you're as you're nearing the end of your PhD program, tell me about what your plan was and and how how you ended up doing what you did. Well, I went back to New Zealand because New Zealand government had partially funded my work, and I worked in New Zealand for eight years. But a wonderful opportunity came up with this new position at Oregon State in 1978. It was a position. Well. Enology was a major part of it, professorship, tenure track. I mean, between when I returned to New Zealand, 1970, 1978, I'd started work on wines in New Zealand and fruit, fruit products and wine. But I'd been observing what was happening in Oregon with the industry. That's when it really took off in the 70s beginning, wasn't it? And... Um, the plantings, the Adelsheims and Erath's and Fullers and all of these people. And it just seemed a wonderful opportunity to get in. I had this affection for wine by this stage to be offered the tenure track position, which was mainly involved with wine, working with the industry. Now, you know how universities work it's, as an academic context and that 75 percent of my appointment was research and teaching about 20 percent extension i i wasn't a person that could spend all their time going out and working with the industry or being extension i had to do research and teaching um, so that's how i came back to to the real Oregon story, 1978. Yeah. It's amazing. Before, before I mean, I have many more questions about that, but let's talk a little bit about the, the, the eight years in the middle there. So you went back to New Zealand and you started and you were working with fruits and wines. Tell me about what that kind of, what your role was and how that evolved uh, in those eight years. You know, the kiwi fruit story got, is a very successful, you know, somebody had a cover, I think it was on, Time magazine or one of the, the fruit that launched a thousand ships. The institute I was at was working on flat out on kiwi fruit and apples as well as grapes. So I did a mixture of work on researching composition, um, nutritional values of these products as well as working with wine. We had a research station that was starting work on varietal clonal selection 
and was part of our program too. So I did get a grounding through that government research. Um, but it wasn't only in grapes and wine. It was in, in fact, kiwi fruit wine. I, I had a paper published in the American Journal of Enology, 1980, I think it was. The work was done in the 70s. For a stage, the kiwi fruit wine exports from New Zealand were bigger than the grape wine. But the same thing happened in New Zealand as Oregon. Classical European varieties became popular and the industry took off. That's pretty incredible. So so you mentioned that uh, you this opportunity came up in 1978. So, so tell me a little bit about that. Obviously, the industry is still pretty small and, and pretty young at that point here in Oregon. So uh, what prompted Oregon State to create this position and, and how did you become aware of it? Yes, well, of course, I was in constant contact with my old colleagues at Oregon State who told me about the position. Um, I think there were some people with vision in the experiment station and saw the potential for the industry because those new positions, there was hardly any professorships and enology coming up anywhere around the world. And the whole Oregon industry, and the credit has to go to industry people too, had some vision. You must have felt that with your involvement. And it must have filtered through to the university. <laughs> so you talked a little bit about the way the, the job was broken down earlier. So 75% sort of research and teaching and, and some extension work. So let's start with the teaching part. At that point, did you have any experience really teaching? No, I didn't. No, I was a research scientist. Yeah. And um, food science and technology, they had a broad program. I developed a course on beverage technology. Of course, I put an emphasis on wine. But no, I, I wasn't a trained teacher. It, I was a research scientists and this is what often happens at university isn't it say tell me about learning to teach yes i'm not sure i just from observing one or two others i suppose and wasn't satisfied myself in the classroom um you know i've always been impressed with these people who come in and just in those days of a whiteboard or piece of chalk and talk to what they were doing and putting it up. I mean, you weren't bombarded with a whole lot of uh, fancy digital stuff. You had to, had to talk to what you were putting up. But, um, so I tried to develop that technique. And even though I wasn't a natural, uh, I think I did all right because, I, you know, it's your passion for subjects, isn't it? So obviously you mentioned sort of research is the background you had and research is what you were doing. So at that point, tell me about some of the research. What were, what were the things that were of interest to the university and to the industry? Right. And what, what, were, what were you researching and publishing on? Well, when I arrived at Oregon State, you've got 
files on Barney Watson's contribution, so I don't have to tell you much about that because he had been hired earlier as a technician instructor that could work with the industry in evaluating varietals and clones of grapes. That was in place. Um, what had influenced me, knowing Oregon's passion for Pinot Noir and those involved in the industry, when I left New Zealand to come to Oregon, the Oregon State was enlightened enough to help fund me. I, they didn't cover it all for a study tour in Europe. And I made a point of, I wanted to be right up to date and develop relationships with the research institutes and industry of interest to Oregon, like Pinot Noir and Burgundy and, and the Alsace, the Gewürz, Pinot Gris and so on. So I really had this opportunity. That's where I laid the groundwork of making good contacts for Oregon, as well as myself for that symposium that followed the Cool Climate One later, because I spent several weeks um, studying. It was a deliberate effort to upskill myself to what might be of interest for research and teaching in Oregon. And um, now when you start to develop research programs, at a university, uh, you know, they have academic requirements. You can't just do everything you want to do that might be what the industry wants. So I had to balance this out. I had to have research subject areas and topics that students can get a master's and PhD in, as well as develop, further develop the wine program. And that also involved getting funding. Um, we developed, and with the cooperation of the industry, we got Pacific Northwest Federal Regional Development Grants. And that allowed us to expand the winery equipment, like presses and facilities, hire a technician to help with the analysis, to do the industry trials that Barney had started. And, um, and the other thing that I'd got onto in my European contacts, with, and Dave Adelsheim had been involved with this too, we got the release of those Burgundy clones of Pinot Noir from uh, Dijon. And um, that, that program was expanded in this area to help the industry with industry funding helping and federal funding helping. As well as that, beside that, I had to have a program where people could get higher degrees. So I worked on, on wine, mainly wine products, but sometimes juice or fruit related and new technologies to do with improving wine quality or processing. And uh, so it, it was developing a broader based program that met the university's needs as well as the industries.
That's quite a lot. Um, I want to talk about the industry first and what they wanted at that point. You mentioned that you had to kind of balance yeah. their interests and the university's interest. What was the industry asking from you at that point? Uh, yes. Obviously, you, you mentioned the famous clones from Dijon. Obviously, that, that was a big part of it. What else did they want uh, Oregon State it to help was, with? It was mainly around evaluating the viticultural trials. I mean, they had a board, the Oregon Wine Advisory Board, it became as wine growers at one stage, whom we met with. And understandably, the great need was for the, the new plantings and selection of viticultural material. So the funding they provided was mainly in this area. I had to get funding from elsewhere for some of the students' degrees. But it, it all ties in together, as you will know, which they overlap. And some of the students who had done these degrees went out into industry in California and Oregon, and one became a professor at Cornell, for instance. But, you know, I, was, I got an award from the American Society of Enology and Viticulture for best research paper of the year with one of these graduate students. <laughs> but out of interest, the money, the money to achieve that was from, from the university and some small research grants I'd got. And however, it did bring kudos to the to the program and to the industry, even though it wasn't what they had funded. You know, it helped put our program on the map internationally. Yeah. So you you mentioned the the, the clones from Dijon. Obviously, that's a story that we've we've heard a lot about. That the kind yes. of legend, le the legendary work that, that Dave Adelsheim and, and such did with. Tell me about building that relationship. Uh, what role did you have in, in building a relationship with with the with the French, and how I guess how did that all take place? You know, serendipity or whatever. Um, if you're sitting down with somebody and you develop good relations, it, it wasn't through official channels of organizations. Initially, I think it was goodwill, developing goodwill. And, you know, the French started to develop an interest in Oregon. As you know, they invested during and so on. They, on my end of it, it was just from visiting the state research stations, giving them talks about what I could contribute and them hosting me. And I presume it was the same with Dave Adelsheim. I mean, official request process, but it was through goodwill. And the French had not released these claims to anybody. <laughs> so Dave Adelsheim will tell you about that. Yeah. yeah absolutely. So um, the you mentioned obviously the, the the paper that won you an award. What were some of the other sort of notable accomplishments for you during that time? Either papers published or 
programs developed or or things like that what what are you what do you look back on most proudly from your time at Oregon State actually like I've mentioned to you the cool climate symposium is something I really feel good about and um we hosted the first one in Oregon. I mean, as I mentioned in earlier correspondence, conceived that while I was visiting these Europeans and seeing the benefit we could have from having them join us in a conference with Oregonian grape growers and winemakers and other countries of interest. And it was a big gamble, Rich, you know, back then and. Well, I started thinking and asking about this for one or two years before it got off the ground. Of course, we got help. When Porter Lombard, whom you've also done, he was appointed from Medford to come up in 1980 or 81, I think. I'd started liaising about this symposium then, but he made a big contribution on getting viticulture input. But when I first tried to get help in holding a new conference, you know, the major grape and wine institutes in the world, Davis, University of California, Australian Wine Research Institute, they didn't support it. They saw no need for a new conference. So it's only, I think, Oregon can feel really good about this because... Um, and also the experiment station, the directors, and that had to take a gamble because we really didn't have sponsorship money from industry. And we got it off the ground with seed money from the university. And the industry helped with that symposium and you know, arranging tours and it was a small display, but the, the symposium itself was an Oregon State funded and developed thing with some help. And um, we were more than surprised when we had 620 registrants from 18 countries. <laughs> and, it's, and it's been a major success since, you know, it's every four years in another country. So you, tell me about, you mentioned the numbers for the first one. Tell me about the first one. Obviously, the first one's going to be special. So how did you find uh, speakers and topics? How did you find places for all these people to go? And how did it all come together? Yes, that, you'd, you'd probably appreciate this behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, getting the keynote speakers was what got the industry to take the gamble on funding it. And I did that with correspondence to these Europeans and Australia, New Zealand, Canada. And then Porter came along and helped on the viticulture side. But it was off the ground by then. And um, once these keynote speakers had agreed to come, others followed even... University of California, Davis. <laughs> Those Californians resent Oregonians upstaging them, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you're probably a Californian, are you? 
Nope, born and raised in Eugene, so I'm an Oregonian oh, through and through. Yeah, good. <laughs> so, so uh, remind me what the 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 year of the first symposium was. Nineteen ninety four. We we have that in our in our library collection. I was paging through it this week. I meant and I meant oh, to bring good. it to the interview and left it home. But uh, so, what were you mentioned eighteen different countries represented and all these different people coming. What was the what were the core needs? What were what were people excited for in this symposium? What what was it offering that they weren't able to find with other kind of conferences or, or things that were going on at that point? Yes, it did have a unique approach. <clears throat> and I won't pick it up and read out the titles to you, but from early on I'd built up um recent developments in the different regions from Europe and in the America. Now, like from Burgundy, I got, actually, he was the director of the Institute, <laughs> came and gave a talk on recent developments in, in Pinot Noir in Burgundy. It had the same sort of thing from all the key European regions recent developments from Germany, recent developments from Colmar, from Alsace, and got the Australians and Canadians and other parts of North America that were called a climate um, from, you know, around the Finger Lakes, upstate New York, and the Canadian. And all of these regions have since taken off too as you know, but these were all representative and they gave talks, keynote people from each region. So it brought the regions together to share this special knowledge in making wine at the climatic edge, if you wish. And um, um, the industry, the other thing that was different, I think, was the design of the symposium. It had a, a large industry component with panels set up with the Dave Adelsheims and Dick Erath's and others. And those panels were just as good in the feedback to the audience as the speakers. It's, it was a very unique feeling. The whole conference came off as a camaraderie symposium, you know, that brought people together. It wasn't a stuffy symposium where a range of people got up and gave talks and, you know, that it was a very uh, Oregon affair. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like something, it sounds very Oregon. That's a perfect word for it. So you, you've talked about how it has continued and it continues to today. I know the most recent one was just a couple of years ago in, in Canada. Uh, tell me about taking it from the first conference in Eugene. It was in Eugene um, yes. to, 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 and, and propelling it on to, to go around the world and do what it's done since. How did, how did the next step happen? Yes. The next step happened to go to New Zealand um, through our contacts and see, I, I'm an Oregonian at heart, 
it's, it could have been, you know, I could have easily stayed in Oregon and been my permanent home. It was just historical accident. I ended up back in New Zealand, but um, the New Zealand industry was in, in a sense parallel to the Oregon one. I think concerning Pinot Noir, Oregon is a huge success story, more than New Zealand has been. And New Zealand was a broader, it took off as a, a broader-based industry. They had a great interest in hosting it too and did a really good job. That was four years later. Then it went to Germany. Um, I lost track of where the next one was back in New York. But each of the regions had a, an interest in their own region developing, um, particularly the New World countries. You know, when I, when I talk about other parts of America, there was one held in Seattle too. I lose track of them all. One in the UK. Um, I'm not sure I've answered your question there, but it, it sort of became a continuing international series with New Zealand picking it up and doing a good job. And in that New Zealand symposium, Oregon, we had a lot of papers, for instance. Oregon was still it was sort of a connecting overflow. So you talked about, uh, well, before we go on to the next part, uh, obviously uh, you sent me your, your introduction to the Canadian, uh, to the Canadian Symposium in 2022 uh, that we have in the archive now. Um, what is it, as you look at it now, uh, 30 years later, 40 years later, uh, what does it mean to you to have this symposium that you helped kind of, kind of scrape together, uh, still going strong and, and, and going around the world like it has? It's very rewarding. Um, <clears throat> you're mainly written out of history, to be honest. I had to work hard <clears throat> with some of the people that come along and were doing promotional material, like the one in the UK, thought it had started in New Zealand, you know, this sort of thing. So I had to write and correct people. Actually, the Canadians caught on quickly. It was just more of a slip. They invited me as a be part of it, but because we were pre-digital in the 1980s, the symposium didn't get the mass um, distribution that is happening these days. And, you know, I think, oh, I should give full credit to Floyd Bodyfield, our extension officer. It, I should have answered your earlier question with how did we manage to get it off the ground. The extension work behind the scenes and it really probably should have been held up in Portland. Eugene's a lovely place but for one reason or another the different industry bodies at that stage it got picked up more by the, the Central Oregon group uh, for, for venue, I'm not sure Floyd 
this happened without my knowing it. One of the meetings he went to, that was arranged. And I don't think Dave Edelsheim was very pleased. <laughs> but it worked fine. It worked fine in Eugene, too. It's amazing how every 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 wine conference in Oregon starts in Eugene and then has to go has to go someplace else, whether it's New Zealand or Portland um, or wherever. So you mentioned a kind of uh, being being happy at, at Oregon State and enjoying your work. So what led you to Lincoln as Lincoln University as your next step? Yeah, I came back to New Zealand. It was nineteen eighty eight. You know, I'd been back in Oregon for ten years. 78 to 88, and um, end of 87. I went back to that. It was a changed institute. New Zealand had gone through a big change. Um, what used to be government institutes had become, they had to find half their funding outside from industry elsewhere. It was different funding models and the industry in New Zealand wasn't as enlightened as Oregon in supporting research. In fact, they got into an argument with the government. The government for the kiwi fruit industry, for instance, they developed matching funds for the research and kiwi fruit research took off and now it's billion dollar industry. A lovely infighting in the in the New Zealand wine industry at the time. They would not put up money, so the government wouldn't put up money, and so I left the research institute in Auckland and went down to Lincoln University, which had a new. It was just starting a new grape and wine teaching program. They had had a bit of research on the viticulture selection of varieties for several years. And, and this was a program that involved developing courses. The industry was expanding rapidly. And again, they came up with this professorship position for enology. So that, that attracted me. It was just following wine, the wine trail. Yeah. So how how did your work continue and how did your work change? What was different about working in New Zealand versus working in, in Oregon? Yeah. Like I say, the Oregon industry had been very enlightened in getting off the ground. They levied themselves for research and marketing in a way that the New Zealand industry wasn't doing for research. Um, I can't remember the figures that Oregon, it was really quite surprising when I went there, so many dollars per ton, every grape grower or winery, you know. That's why the program at Oregon State was underpinned with the industry research. In New Zealand, we even had a historical research organization that was at Tikawata. It's a Polynesian name, Tikawata. Um, 
the government closed it because industry would provide no more money to support it. So I don't want to paint a negative picture about New Zealand, but compared to Oregon at the time, it was not as progressive and it's changed. They've developed industry boards and things that handle things better now. Down at Lincoln, I, I got involved with teaching and research of wine. It was all wine. And it became a major program that met the needs of the expanding industries. We put out, it was very good for change of career people. We developed some postgraduate diplomas. <clears throat> and we had people coming from all over the world, actually. We developed an exchange program with Oregon and General Lincoln. We have a general program and it wasn't just for wine, but I had people coming from Canada, California, Oregon, Europe, Australia, New Zealand to, to this course. About half the students were from overseas. So it was a big teaching program. With research, you have to have research at the university, and we carried on the Pinot Noir research. I was thinking the other day, I can send you copies of at least summary pages and abstracts of one or two other cool climate symposium work, like on Pinot Noir. I'm not sure if you've got access to the, all the cool climate symposia. So, so tell me about uh, the how had how had research on Pinot Noir progressed? Obviously, you were, you were many years into it at this point, and and Pinot Noir was becoming a bigger deal in the cool climate viticulture world. So, tell me about the, how the research progressed and what you were focusing on while you were in New Zealand versus when you'd been here. Yes, in Oregon, you know, I have to admit. Most of the program was viticultural interests around the quality of the wine we could get from different clones um, and varieties, but mainly Pinot Noir. So you'll find some papers we are looking at quality assessment or measuring um, quality, color, flavor, sensory, comparing. The clones. I'd be interested to know. I've lost track of what's happened in Oregon um, with the new plantings that have gone in. What selection of grapes they're now using. But um, you've got that work from Barney's, those reports. Would, and there's one paper I was going to copy, a summary paper of the overall results from the different clones. I will send you that one in case you don't have it out of the, one of the cool climate. Um, when I came to New Zealand, I had to work with graduate students. Um, some of them, the, the masters, would dash off to industry before finishing their thesis. So, but I, I got some very good PhDs too, and 
and I'll give you a little detail on the type of work, but interestingly enough, the program has produced my graduates, PhDs, who became professors in wine science or enology in five countries, US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and France. So it really did churn out, um, you know, that end of it. With the quality of Pinot Noir, we kept trying to find better ways of assessing it. And I even had a PhD who was a psychologist who's got into the sensory cognitive aspects. Her name's Wendy Parr, and she's done sensory work on how people perceive and make errors in judgment. Um, but nothing much has changed over the quality of pen and noir, though people still look for the same things you do when you're drinking it. You know, the colour and the aroma and taste and balance and, and the nice tannins. So these are the areas we worked in, looking specifically at you know, what's happening to the tannins with different viticulture treatment? What's happening to the color with different pressing, this type of thing? So you, you talked a little bit there about, about the, 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 future, the future teachers you taught, the future, um, future scientists that were coming through the program. Uh, tell me a little bit about the sort of the mentorship role, both uh, in Oregon and New Zealand, of, of, of your position. Obviously, you're teaching master's students, you're teaching PhDs, you're teaching people who are going to go out and and continue the research. So, tell me a little bit about um, the mentorship role and and some of the some of the the people who worked with you or or st taught, studied under you who you're kind of happy to watch uh, out in the world now. That's <laughs> a that's a big question, Rich. Um, well, the Canadian symposium that just came up. One of my PhD students became a professor at Brock University where they held the Cool Climate Symposium. And it's very satisfying. I mean, I mean they, they developed their own. They had more strings to their bow than they got from under me. And they've gone in many directions. Um, Thomas Hennick Kling went to Cornell. He was head of the program there. And they have a general program for viticulture and wine too. He was a microbiologist. The one I told you who was a psychologist, the French love holistic evaluation when it comes to wine. Um, you know, like in America, you've got, is it Parker, the main scale of the 100 points? So French don't like to use that. They like to have your perception of overall impression. And she, her research and why she became a guest professor in France, is she worked on cognitive perception issues of 
not just in Pinot Noir, in wine. Yeah. It gets a little bit ethereal. <laughs> as, as all good wine conversation can, of course. Yeah. Uh, when it when it comes to um, uh, mentoring, obviously, uh, what did you find important about your role? What were the most important things you could provide for your PhD students? Yeah, very astute question. You're looking to the core of what motivates people. For some reason or other, I often find like I have vision on what needs to be or could be achieved and done. I can't always follow through. <laughs> but, I mean, even my past directors commented on the plus and minus of my personality. But I've been able to see what's needed to be done looking ahead five or ten years and sometimes it's disappointing because that's where you often don't get research funding for long-term stuff um, to give you an example rich i had students starting to work on organic style and lower and reduced alcohol wine um, 20 30 years ago and that you made the comment in some comment, you know, it's become part of the field now. At the time, I couldn't get research funding for it, you know. So I think with the mentoring, they've got to come up with original ideas too. But if you can spark those, you know, get good discussions on getting them thinking about what might be tried. And um, I don't know, people know if you care about what they're doing. If you, and because uh, I've had students where things backfired and, and we didn't click, but the ones where you click, you sit down and you have discussions and, um, they go away and do all the work, but you manage to put some seed ideas in, in place, you know. Well, I shouldn't give the idea impression that all of the students have been these higher degrees. The most successful part of our program here at Lincoln was what we called a postgraduate diploma, a short term. And I think it's excellent. It's, I don't know why they haven't. I think they might be looking at it in Oregon now, but change of career people who wanted to get into the industry, one, one and a half year programs. Most of the people who got these degrees went back into industry, you know, not research and teaching. Yeah. And for the course here, and Speaking of the Canadians, they were, they came from the Okanagan and Ontario, Vancouver Island, Tasmania, places where the industry was developing. Oregon was a step ahead. So we have students out of the course here in Lincoln that have gone out into many countries. Well, it's pretty amazing to be able to have kind of both, where you're 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 training students who are going to go on to to train others, and you're also training students who are going to go into the industry and, and immediately. 
and make changes. So, I mean, kind of seems like you had the best, the best of both worlds with the Lincoln position. Um, so tell me a little bit about, uh, obviously we've, we've talked, we've covered some of your areas of study uh, and I'm really glad you talked about like the low and reduced alcohol wines. It was among the very first things you published as I was looking through your kind of publishing yeah. time there. Uh, and it was it was jarring to me, given the the current climate of low and no alcohol wines being mm -hmm. suddenly very popular, that you were studying this in the 90s and the, in the late 80s even. Um, so tell me a little bit about in the course of your career. Uh, what are some of the, the your your most enjoyable topics? What are some of the things you've enjoyed researching the most, um, or or some papers that you you're particularly fond of, or or really enjoy having gotten published? Yeah, again, it takes a bit of thought. Um, I really need time to think about that because there's many, there's many, but it's when you've um, come up with something original it's not just uh, quite a lot of research as you'll know can be number gathering statistical stuff measurements and quite a monotonous um, routine <clears throat> that can be satisfying too but it's an awful lot of work sometimes without creating anything new that comes out of that. The American Society of Enology Award was with a graduate student, Robert Shear, for wines in general. You know, if you make home brew a beer or wine house sediments can drop out of it, come cloudy, often these are caused by proteins. Well, because I was in a department that had the techniques that allowed this, what we got awards for there was we discovered which proteins were causing the problem and possible ways of removing them and what the industry was doing. I mean, you don't want too much detail, do you? These were unstable proteins that can cause clouds and sediments in beer and wine. And we, we had different electrophoresis, new techniques that you probably know about. I haven't learned about your background yet. We could separate the proteins and we could study what the molecular size was and this sort of thing. So it was quite basic work. Um, and then we were looking at new methods of removing them using membranes, ultrafiltration. It sounds technology, and technology is not the romantic side of wine, but um, you're making beers and wine. If you want a nice clear product or sterile product, well, we had, you'll find papers there on new application of membrane technology for wines and juices. And, and this is because we thought we, if it's that size protein, if we have that size pore, we should be able to take it out, you know, this sort of thing. And then setting out and 
achieving it. Not always, but yeah, yeah. But actually, but something that's actually impactful on the on the industry. Yes, but it's not necessarily with Oregon and Pinot Noir. The same here in New Zealand. There's been a, a huge romantic movement to get away from technology. <laughs> and a lot of it's good. The romance of wine, we've got to keep it. But you don't necessarily have to trample it with your feet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you're saying there's a middle ground somewhere <laughs> yes and, and actually it's interesting culturally rich i think americans are probably the best at keeping an open mind but oregon's got a real passion for pinot noir and how how it's made but when you look at the wine industry for years i was greatly influenced by the germans with their science and technology. And the Germans love to process things. They'll process them to death. You know, they'll filter and filter and nice shiny machines. But the French had these old traditional methods that for a variety like Pinot Noir tends to lend itself. So you have a cultural thing there. Um, you don't want to abandon technology, but you don't want to overuse it. That's so interesting. So you talked a little, you kind of lead into my next question a little bit. You talked about sort of the development of, of Pinot Noir here. Obviously, you, your first time in Oregon was, as you mentioned, right at the, the dawn of the modern era of Oregon wine. And so you've been in and around it or, or aware of it for, for most of its lifespan. So tell me about the, the biggest to you evolution uh, in Oregon wine, um, and and as as you see the industry now, or even you know in the past few years, um, could you ever imagine it getting to this point? Yes, good question. That I think the biggest change where Oregon took off was the seventies, eighties, where you know, like David Lett getting that gold medal in seventy nine, yeah, seventy nine. <clears throat> showing it could be done <clears throat> in a new world region outside of Burgundy. The French are pretty, you know, uh, think they're the benchmark and they probably are. But um, it's amazing how quickly, and it's, it's due to the philosophy of those early pioneers in the approach. Oregon very quickly narrowed down Hopefully our work with clones and selection helped, but the techniques that optimize what you've got and um, to be able to provide something else for you in the near future. I'm writing, in writing, I'm co-authoring a book on philosophy and making wine. And I've got a section on the Oregon Trail in search of Pinot Noir that's going to cover this. It's, I can't release it yet, but I could summarize some of it if you're interested in the future. But the key changes were, you know, these Dave Adelsheims and Dickie Raths and um, those early guys, 
a lot of them were feeling their way too. And it's amazing how quickly a consistently high quality was achieved with the way they handled the... Some of the help came from us, like with Barney Watson's malolactic fermentation, uh, extension work, improving the secondary fermentations, um, but mainly through adopting traditional French techniques of winemaking. Now, Dave Edelsheim's the one for you to talk to about this as we come through to the present. I know he's got concerns about the direction the Oregon industry could take, not necessarily. And we've had the same problem in New Zealand. I think Oregon's done better than New Zealand because you've been 70 or 80 percent family owned or private. The big corporations haven't taken over too much. Um, I know they can make good wine, but quite often they don't go that extra step that a smaller person can do. And I know in Oregon, since I left, I've been following like the buying out of ERAS. That was sitting the show, wasn't it? And then Constellation and others. There's one or two big people coming into the industry, aren't there? in the last five or ten years or so. Is the quality of the wine holding up, the bigger amount being produced? It's a really good question. I think I think most people would argue yes. Uh, yes. And, and I think that uh, from what we hear, the advances in technology, the advances in clonal selection, the advances in sort of understanding of, yes. of viticulture and enology um, have the 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 leap, leaps and bounds it feels like are, uh, so the quality is is ever higher. I've got that impression too. It's just something I exchanged one or two emails with Dave Adelsheimer earlier. And it might have been in one of his own interviews. He seemed to have some concerns about one or two possible changes because what happened in New Zealand. If I don't think, no, Oregon won't do it. You're a bit smarter than us. You know, we've had a huge success story with Sauvignon Blanc. And the big corporations came in in a big way. I mean, bought up all sorts of people and massive quality standards dropped. Mass production of it. Yeah. We've got the smaller Pinot Noir people, too, that are trying to do the same as Oregon's, um, Central Otago, and some of them think they're doing as well. I'm not convinced yet. <laughs> High standard, uh, for sure. So uh, to kind of wrap up for you here, uh, tell me about uh, sort of post-academic life, uh, retirement, in New Zealand, what you've been up to, and uh, what else you're sort of looking at, look, looking ahead to? Look, you're, you're not looking ahead yet, Rich. You can't be playing that card on me. But uh, 
I'm an old bugger at 84, no, 83, just coming up, and I'm looking back a lot and enjoying. i tell you what, I've really enjoyed my exchange with you. You've sparked a whole lot of interest. I'm going to do a bit more writing and research around. I'm busy enough. I'm not just resigned to going and playing bridge or poker and we have, I have one or two. Uh, we have a university of the third age. I don't know if the same organizations in Oregon where take part in this talks and education. And um, I'm doing a little bit of re reading, research and writing. Try to keep, you spend about 60% of your time, I estimated it the other day, staying healthy and fit or trying to. So <laughs> you've got a lot of time cut out with that. That sounds like a pretty excellent balance to me. Um, <laughs> so uh, we obviously we, we covered a lot. Obviously there's there's a lot to cover. Uh, is there anything I, I, that, we, that we haven't covered today that you'd like to cover? Anything I didn't ask that we should have talked about? You've covered a lot and you've left a lot of thoughts in my mind. I'm just glancing down here. Probably haven't done justice to a lot of other people who became involved with that wine symposium. Um, but you asked what I was proud of. I really did conceive and create and motivate that damn symposium it was hard work because it was running on the seat of its pants and we thought we would be paying for something we couldn't afford you know the Oregon industry has grown even more than I thought it would it's I don't know if it's still happening but it was an incredible growth through those last 20-30 years yeah, it is. It is somehow still growing, uh, both in in vineyards planted in in winery bonded wineries every year. It's not quite as fast as it was a few years ago, but it, it's still growing. Uh, it's now we we this last year passed Washington as the second having the second most wineries in the country. Uh, it's wow. been pretty, pretty pretty phenomenal growth. That is really interesting. The cooperation of the industry people was remarkable amongst themselves. I mean, not everyone did, but in this critical stage, and you know, fancy a little boy from New Zealand going to your governor's office in Salem with industry growers and being listened to. We were trying to get federal funds to help research and it needed input from the industry, the university, and the governor himself. And the people I went with delegate delegations to the governor's office. That wouldn't have happened in New Zealand. It would have been delegated to somebody the, the boss would go and talk to the minister, you know? So Oregon somehow had that spirit of um, camaraderie, as you mentioned earlier, that and, and collaboration and access. And as you say, having having people on the other end who are willing to listen and work with the industry, yes. you know, not yes. every time and not in every way, but in general, 
you know, working with an industry and helping it to grow yes. and flourish. Yeah. It is a real success story. That's what I'm trying to build into this little chapter. I think Oregon stands out of all the New World regions. Pulling together is a region to achieve excellence, you know? It's something you should be proud of. You know, I, I'm proud of it. My local friends here get sick of me talking up Oregon. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, uh, thank you so much. We really, I really appreciate this. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time. It's been, a, like I say, it's been a pleasure communicating with you as well. I'm glad to have uh, sparked some interest in you as well. So thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.